could sing, but it's better I don't. But praise the Lord for those who can. Well, take your Bibles. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be in Revelation in just a moment, but I want to set the context. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. And again, if you're those that have been part of Union Grove Baptist Church are aware um, what hopefully those of you that are fresh to the church will find out if you don't already know. Every single Sunday, uh, we open up the Word of God, preach from it, nothing else, nothing more, and uh, see what God has to say to us. And uh, the Bible is, if you will, it's our handbook. It is the Bible. <laughs> There's nothing more, nothing less, as we like to say. And uh, we always look to the Word of God to hear what God has to say to us. The Bible makes it very clear in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 that every single word of God, it's inspired, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God might be mature, perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So everything we do, everything is centered upon uh, the word of God and, of course, Jesus Christ himself. And as we begin to look at our message in just a few moments, I wanted to set the context because there's a very special thing that God does with Christians. Again, a Christian is one who realized they were a sinner, they were lost, uh, bound for a Christless eternity, but at some point uh, they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and uh, accepted his free gift of eternal life and uh, place their faith in him. So for every single Christian this morning, and if you've not trusted Christ, I, I invite you to uh, listen to the message, and at the end we'll explain exactly uh, what you can do to have a personal relationship with Christ, which is, of course, the foundation of everything we do here. But those and uh, the majority of you, at some point in your life, you made a personal decision to uh, accept God's free gift of eternal life. And uh, we of, often quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 here, in fact, almost every Sunday at one or both services. And uh, just as a reminder, there's a verse 10 after verse 9. And uh, for by grace are you saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. Now let's go to verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for Good works, good, all right? Now, not as many of you knew that as you knew the first part. Uh, a lot of times we do Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we give out the uh, the gospel of how to come to Christ, and then uh, we get to verse 10, and uh, all of a sudden we go flat. Uh, we don't bring it up, but we need to bring it up today because we're going to talk about the wonderful, wonderful, uh, uh, if you will, benefit that we have as God's people to be his ambassadors. We're going to be talking in Revelation chapter 11 today about two witnesses that will be divinely appointed during a time called the tribulation period. We'll get into that in a moment, but before we do, I want to set the context with every single one of us. What has God called us to do, and why are these two witnesses that we'll learn about in Revelation today, why are they so vitally important to God? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you have it, verse 20. The Bible says to Christians through the Apostle Paul, now then, we, speaking of God's people, Christians, those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ, are what? Ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What is God saying here? Every single one of you, and I, I, I don't know if I've ever done this here or not, 
But when you woke up this morning, how many of you looked in a mirror? I think most of you did because you all look pretty good this morning. <laughs> so you look in a mirror and what do you see? You say, well, I'm, I don't want to go what I see. But, um, but you look in the mirror, you see yourself. And uh, you do whatever you do to, to get yourself uh, ready to go outside or to see your spouse or your husband or whatever or your children and uh, you, you freshen yourself up. But you know there's a lot more to that picture that you're looking at in the mirror than just uh, a few strands of hair like I have or uh, uh, brushing your teeth or uh, whatever you might do when you get ready. And God says, you know what I want you to see when you look in the mirror this morning and tonight and this afternoon when you, when you uh, primp yourself a little bit. He says, I want you to see who you really are in Christ. And God says, you know what I see? He says, I see an ambassador. And you're like, wow, uh, an ambassador. Now, uh, I brought this up a couple of weeks ago, and it's been all over the news, especially if you watch Milwaukee stations. And uh, uh, Mayor Barrett, mayor of uh, Milwaukee, was appointed by President Biden. I don't know if it's approved yet to uh, be his ambassador in Luxembourg. And it was a big deal. And we talked about this on one of the services. It's, uh, he called press conferences. He put it out there. What an honor uh, to be chosen by the president to be an ambassador in, in Luxembourg. Well, what's the ambassador's job? The ambassador's job is to tell everyone in that country about the United States of America. It's to cause a good relationship to take place. And basically, if somebody there has questions about uh, America or their relationship with us, what does the ambassador do? Well, he sets up that relationship. And God says uh, in, in the same way, you're ambassadors for Christ. Every single one of us that has trusted Christ as our personal Savior, Ephesians 2.10 kicks in. We are his workmanship created for good works. All right? Now, again, the good works, do they come before or after you've trusted Christ? They come after. Every single thing that we do that we think is good and honoring and righteous, God looks at every single thing we've done before we've trusted Christ basically as filthy rags, corrupted, because we do things for the wrong motive before Christ. But after Christ, every single thing that you do and you uh, do it in the right uh, way for God, he says they're, they're good works, and God looks at it. The folks, as we mentioned this morning, the Iwana folks, the, the Sunday school folks, uh, the people that take care of the, uh, uh, the buildings, those that come in, and uh, I'll come in sometimes and I'll see a, a couple of our ladies, they'll be outside and they're trimming up the bushes and making things look nice and clean and, and, and your various giftedness and the musicians that we had, all these things and so many others that folks do, they're serving the Lord. But God says, you're my ambassador. What does that mean? You represent Christ. Do you understand that? When you look in the mirror, here's what I want you to see. You are God's ambassador. Maybe you want to put, uh, sometimes people do what I ask, sometimes not. But here's a good thing I, I'd recommend. I want you to put at the top of the mirror there, put ambassador for Christ up there to remind yourself. If, you can, if it doesn't come to mind, stick it up there. It's like, I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 11. And we're going to look at two divinely appointed witnesses in just a moment. I do invite you uh, immediately after Sunday school. We have our fellowship time for about 40, 45, or about not 45 minutes, 20 minutes to 30 minutes. We'll be out in the, the gym. Please show up there. And then immediately afterwards, I'll be uh, completing uh, lesson 13 on relationships. 
and this will be our closeout uh, Sunday school on this particular subject. And uh, the, the topic is relationships take extraordinarily hard work. By the way, being an ambassador for Christ is extraordinarily hard work at times. So let's look at that this morning. As we like to say, we like to peel God's word, and in this case, God's prophetic word, one passage at a time. Uh, we'll go down to uh, chapter 11, and let's read uh, well, about the first uh, 10 verses. So let's read that together. We'll pray and get into the message. Then as I was given a read like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, now he's talking, uh, remember now, John's up in heaven. Uh, the Apostle John, he's uh, uh, actually being told these things by Christ himself. And we'll explain what all it means in just a moment. But John says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God. He's talking about the future third temple. Measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city, speaking of Jerusalem, underfoot for 42 months or three and a half years. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days. In other words, three and a half months, 40, or, uh, 42 uh, uh, months, and uh, three and a half years, 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, Jerusalem, which spiritually is called Sodom and Gomorrah, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all who saw them. Father, I pray now as we open up the only book that you've ever given us to read, the precious word of God, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, as we just read, this is an uh, awe-inspiring passage. It's, it's uh, terrifying, if you will, on some accounts, and it's thrilling on others. So, Father, I pray that as we open up your prophetic word, as we see what absolutely, positively, unequivocally will take place in the future, I pray that you'd stir our hearts, that as we've been called to be your ambassadors, that we would do our part just like these two witnesses will do their part in the future. So, Father, once again, we ask that you do what only you can do, revive the saved and save the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. So today what we're going to talk about, are you faithful under fire, and based on the passage, I think you already have a clue where we're going here. Uh, we're looking at these two witnesses that will come up during that seven-year tribulation period. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions as we set the context this morning. 
What is your reaction when you read the Word of God? Is it something that is exciting to you? Does it, it, does it move you? Does it encourage you to do things? Or is it basically sometimes, and, and some folks will come to me and I'll say, Look, Pastor, you know, I'm, I've been reading the Bible, but it's just like I, I just read it and it's nothing for me. And I'm like, well, then maybe it's uh, slow it down. Uh, it's like, well, you know, on my reading schedule, I'm supposed to read two or three chapters a day, and I, and I, and I zip through them, and it's like I, I walk away, I get nothing out of it. And I'm like, okay, how about just read one verse and sit there and read it again and read the one verse again and again until all of a sudden you, you understand it and it speaks to your heart. And uh, maybe you move forward and read a couple of verses and it's like just don't read the Word of God just to uh, do it like a homework assignment. Take your time when you read it. Let it speak to you and God's Word will speak to you. For the Word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow to the heart and so forth, And according to Hebrews, and it'll do something in you. God's Word is powerful. But let me make this one statement. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the Word of God can come back void. You can read it, and it's like, you know, and the Bible makes it clear that the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness. It literally says foolishness to them. So if you have a hard time and the Bible means nothing to you, 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 you do it, you try. Uh, again, we'll invite you to uh, make a decision for Christ a little bit uh, later today. All right, Bethany, I'm going to need your help, please. Uh, what value does God place on his words? How important is the word of God to himself? What is God's reaction to how we respond to his word? And Tony, if you can pop me ahead one more, please. There we go. So what we're going to do this morning is, I think you know what I'm doing. Got to pull out my little notes so I read it right. All right. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to examine the prophetic certainty of a two-man powerful preaching team and the outcome for those who accept and reject that particular message. Next, please. So what we're going to be doing as we start out, we're going to be looking at the temple. So we're going to go back to Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given, the apostle John says, a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Next. And what we're going to be do looking at now, if there's many renditions of what the first and second temples looked like. The interesting thing that we want to center on this morning is we're going to look at why is God telling the Apostle John to measure the temple? Now, if you uh, uh, have seen, and we talk about it quite a bit here at Union Grove, if you go to Jerusalem today, is there a temple sitting on God's temple mount? No, there's not. The Jewish temple is not where God wants it to be today. There's been two Jewish temples in Jerusalem. The first temple was there from 960 B.C. until it was taken down by the Babylonians in 586 when they plundered Jerusalem. In 515 B.C., the second temple came up. That temple stood until in A.D. 70, the Romans came in and took that temple down when they plundered Israel. Now, there's not been a temple on God's Jewish temple Mount since 8070. 
Now, we've often talked about that, and I'll give you a little bit of review on it. Why is there not a temple in Israel today? And I very much, and I got 2,000 years of history to back this up. Where is the temple of the Holy Spirit today? Take a look in that mirror once again. God said, every single Christian, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, and 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the church age. It's, it's been inserted into God's prophetic timeline. Who are the people that God's prophetic timeline is centered around? Jews or Gentiles? It's Jewish, okay? You look at the Old Testament, again, I always bring it up, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, that is God's timeline for the Jewish people. The church age in which we live today has been inserted into that timeline, and we've given that multiple times as uh, uh, to how that works out. All right, so God says, listen, I want you to uh, measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. So what is this telling us? It's telling us there's going to be a third temple in Jerusalem. You say, well, is there more to this that, that you can back that up with? Well, I'm glad you asked because absolutely there is. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, the Antichrist confirms a covenant with the Jewish people and allows them to build the third temple. It's not happened yet. It is prophecy. In Daniel 9.27, you say, well, how do you know he allows them to build the third temple? Because you go to the second part of the verse, and it makes it very clear that after three and a half years, or in the midst of the seven-year period, God will allow, if you will, the Romans, the Antichrist, to stop the sacrifices and the oblations which are taking place on the Temple Mount. There will be a third temple. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 tells us that uh, there will be an abomination of desolation. In other words, during the tribulation period, when God allows that third temple to be built after three and a half years, that peace treaty will be broken. Revelation 12 tells us that Satan will come down and empower the Antichrist, and for three and a half years, the worst Holocaust ever to take place will take place right here on this earth. Over six million Jewish people were killed during the Holocaust, God makes it very clear, Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9, that two-thirds of all Jewish people will die during the Holocaust. And folks, based on there being over 14 million Jewish people today, if those numbers hold consistent, that's over 6 million, well over 6 million people that will uh, perish, if you will, during the second half of the tribulation. When this temple, and of course this is just an artist's rendition, we don't know exactly how it'll look, but when uh, uh, they're in, 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 uh, taken over, the Jews come in, they, they start their sacrificial system, they're returning back to the temple, and now John says, wait a second, I want you to measure that third temple, but I only want you to measure certain parts. So if you look up here, there's basically, there's a couple of major sections to uh, the temple, which has always existed since uh, the first and the second temples. So you basically have this outer court where the Gentiles and so forth can come. The inner court was reserved for Jewish people. Gentiles couldn't go in there. And uh, he says, listen, uh, uh, don't measure a, uh, the outer side, if you will, because it's been given over to the Gentiles. You know what God was saying? He's saying after those first three and a half years, in that last three and a half years, it's going to be the worst time for the Jewish people ever. They're going to plunder the temple. 
The Jewish people, by the way, they'll be kicked out. They'll be, they'll be running for their lives, if you will. Revelation chapter 12, which we'll get to next uh, in two weeks, talks about that issue. But he's like, uh, measure it. Next slide, please. And he says, uh, uh, I want you to, if we can get there, there we go. Uh, he says, uh, I want you to measure uh, the temple, the courts, and the altar and those who worship there. Now, in a Jewish temple, when they, and we're familiar, what was one of the main things that took place at the temple? It was the sacrificial system. So if you look up here, and the position is correct on uh, this particular artist's job, so you had this big, massive art, altar that was where the sacrifices would be brought. Next slide, please. All right, so here's a little bit better rendition, if you will, of it. So you've got uh, uh, this ramp that uh, uh, the priests would walk up. The people would bring their sacrifices. The, the priests would uh, kill the sacrifice. They'd drain the blood and so forth. They'd sac put the uh, 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 remains on the altar. Now here's, a, here's a something that gets people really upset sometimes. You read your Bible and you say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Hebrews tell us that when Jesus came, the once and for all sacrifice was completed? Yes, it does. That's exactly what it says. You say, well, when, when, when Jesus came, that basically said no more sacrifices are needed. Well, that's exactly right. You say, well, why in the world during the tribulation period will there be the sacrificial system reinstated? Well, here's why. We've talked about Ezekiel chapter 37 when God made it very clear that the Jewish people would be drawn back to Israel. I talk about this a lot on Wednesday night at our Prophecy Focus Update, Global Update. 1948, Israel once again became a what? A state, if you will, a country, in our, maybe in our vernacular here, but they call it a state. Israel gained statehood. There are about 200,000 Jewish people that lived in Israel in that time period. Today, since 1948, and some of you have been alive since 1948. It's in, if you will, within uh, shortly before our lifetime or within some of your lifetimes, 7.5 million Jewish people have gone to Israel to live. You say, well, how in the world did that happen? Because Ezekiel 37 made it very clear that God would draw his people back to Israel. Folks, if there's any doubt if the Bible's true, all you got to do is read Ezekiel 37, and you're watching God set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. It's not a guesswork. It's not, well, you know. No, it's absolute. And 50% of all Jewish people, and this just happened about a year ago when they topped the 50% mark, there's a little over 14 million Jewish people that are registered, if you will, on census around the world. 50% of them have gone to Israel. Why? Because the magnet of God has been drawing them. It's just an amazing thing. It's God. Why would people leave good jobs and go to a place where they have no work? Why would uh, uh, young people, teenagers, uh, uh, folks that are, are Jewish, they say, well, you know, we're going to go to Israel. And uh, uh, you know what's a mandatory thing in Israel? The Israel Defense Force. For, young, for uh, 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 teen, young or uh, mid-aged teens, ladies and men. You go to Israel... You decided to take up roots there, you will join the military. By the way, have there been any military conflicts in Israel? 
<laughs> constant, right? I mean, every other day they're getting called up to a, a riot on the Temple Mount or Hamas shooting rockets in or Lebanon shooting rockets in, and uh, yet they come back. Why is that happening? Why would they give up virtually everything to go to a country where they're going to have to join the military? They may not get as good a job as they had in, the, in uh, uh, not only in the United States, but countries around the world. Why? Because God's calling them back. And it's happening. It's, you say, man, that is really so. That's not a guesswork, folks. That's reality of what God's doing. And you look at that, and as I like to say, and for our new folks, I, I bring out a lot of times that there's 1,000 prophecies in the Word of God, 1,000 of them. 500 have come to pass exactly as God wrote them, meaning 500 more have to take place. So when we're looking at the things that we're going to look at today, you say, well, Brother Rich, do you think do you really believe that's really going to happen? Absolutely. God's word never fails. The problem is with most uh, uh, folks that don't know the word of God, speaking of folks that don't come here, of course, uh, um, uh, or another good Bible-believing church, and, and they think that all that's in the Bible is, you know, do good to others, love love, love the Lord, and love people, and be kind. Folks, that's, you know, that's about this much out of this much in the word of God. God reveals things that will be taking place and things that are happening as we speak. So when you go through the Word of God and you examine it, it's amazing what you find out. All right, let's go to the next picture. One more uh, a temple uh, picture here, just a little bit of a close-up. The massive size of uh, the second temple looked very, very similar to what you see on the screen. The altar was there. The sacrifices were being done. Now, oh, I started and I didn't finish it. Why are the Jewish people going back to Israel? Is it to do sac the sacrificial system someday? No. Is it to serve the Messiah? No. Is it to establish their Jewish faith? No. You say, what? Why are they going? I've talked when I'm in, I've been in Israel about 10 different times doing tours and conducting tours. And when I talk to uh, the Jewish folks there that have, that have made Ali Ah or have gone to Jerusalem, I'm like, why, why did you come back? What, what drew you here? You know what they tell me? It's never about, well, we want to serve the God of Israel. Not. It's never about, well, it, it's, you know, I just felt I needed to come to the land. I just, I just needed to be here. Why? I don't know. It's just, a, I, I felt it was the right thing to do. You know, I'm Jewish. There's this thing with, uh, with Israel, and I just, I thought it was a good thing to come here. That is over 90% of the Jewish people that are going back to Israel. It's not because they love God. It's not because they're religious people. The vast majority that return could care less about religion. It's amazing. And you say, well, what is it? I say, it's Ezekiel 37, God putting out his Jewish magnet and saying, come on back. And that's exactly what he's doing. Next slide. So we've looked at the measuring. He's measuring this temple. He's basically putting down that it's going to exist. Well, what's the meaning of it? And he says, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and don't measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Next slide. So let's go to our prophetic timeline for a moment and figure out what's going on. And again, if you're new to uh, uh, going through the Word of God verse by verse, as we do here at church, uh, I'll fill you in on, on God's timeline real quick, and then we'll move forward to the two witnesses. 
So here's what's taking place. We currently live, if you look at the bottom left of the screen, the church age. The church age began after the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. The church age has been in existence now for 2,000 years. If you take the Bible literally, which we do here at, at Union Grove, by taking the Bible literally, you will look at when was creation. According to the Bible, according to Genesis 5 and 11, as a little review, creation took place in approximately 4,000 B.C., not 4 billion B.C., 4,000 B.C., Genesis 5 and 11. The genealogies are given. The dates are given. It's unequivocally 4,000 B.C., from 4,000 B.C. until 2,000 B.C., and you can talk, what group of people existed? Gentiles. We only have Gentiles living from 4,000 to 2,000 B.C. In 2,000 B.C., Genesis chapter 12, the next people group, if you will, is formed. The first 2,000 years of history are Genesis 1 to 11. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham comes on the scene, has a son named Isaac, has a son named Jacob, whose name was changed to? Israel. Israel then, well, we talk about the children of Israel, are the Jewish people, the Hebrew children. From 2000 B.C. until the time of Christ, we have two people groups. There are Gentiles and Jews, all right? Two people groups, Gentiles and Jews. Now, a third people group formed after the cross, and it is called the church or Christians. Now, we're talking about the church. We're not talking about Union Grove Baptist Church. We're talking about the church universal made up of Jewish and Gentile individuals that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, forming the church. 1 Corinthians 10.32 tells us, give no offense to the Jew, nor to the Greek or Gentile, nor to the church of God, the three people groups. If you uh, go, uh, I'm going to give you a, a quick website to go to, so get your pencils out. If you go to prophecytoday.com, prophecytoday.com, P-T-R-N, uh, Prophecy Today Radio Network, P-T-R-N. In fact, I did an interview with uh, Jimmy DeYoung Jr. on uh, that uh, their outlet. If you go to the website, you can look it up under P-T-R-N. Uh, there's about an hour and a half show on there. I'm, I close it out. Uh, last uh, this particular session and we talk about the three strands of the human family and why they're so important for prophecy uh, so if you go there you can uh, go again to uh, PTRN uh, the weekly show and you can uh, listen to that it's a great show that they do every single week uh, going through world events and then some current events uh, right here in America bottom line is the the church was formed first Corinthians 10 32 makes it clear the next major event as we know on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church when Jesus Christ comes in the air and takes his children home to be with him that should be getting a fairly common knowledge now we get into after the rapture of the church when one generation of Christians will be immediately taken up to heaven, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 54, you say, Brother Rich, I can't keep up with all this. It's on the internet. Slow it down, write down the references, all right? I got to get this out. All right, so we have the rapture of the church. God, God calls us up to be with him. Then what happens? Daniel 9, 27, the Antichrist confirms a peace treaty, a covenant with what group of people? The Jews, not the Gentiles, not the church, the Jewish people. The third temple is built. We just read about Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now what's going to take place? 
we're seeing that there's two periods of 42 months or three and a half years or 1260 days, all synonymous terms. You say, wait a minute, 1260 days, that doesn't come out through 365 divided by, you're right, prophetic years looking at the Jewish calendar are in 360 days, not 365, so we have 1260 days. Same thing we read in scripture this morning, yes? Yes, yes. thank you. All right, so what are we looking at? The last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation are known as the Great Tribulation. It's the end of the time of the Gentiles. Do you know since 586 B.C., 586 B.C., when the Babylonians plundered the Jewish people in Israel, the Jews have not had control of their land. And it's been the time of the Gentiles. Find that in Luke chapter 21, the times of the Gentiles. Do you know when the time of the Gentiles end? Well, God says for the last 42 months of the tribulation period, who's going to be plundering it? The Gentiles. The day, the time of the Gentiles end is Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 11, when Jesus Christ comes back, steps foot on this earth, and sets up his 1,000-year millennial kingdom. That's when the time of the Gentiles end. So the Israel, will there be peace in Israel? No. You say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's got to be peace. No. There will be no peace in Israel. The Jewish people will not have control, if you will, of Jerusalem. They will not have control of Israel, if you will, totally until Jesus Christ comes back. By the way, Is God through with the Jewish people? I have one of my dearest, closest Jewish friends here this morning, Vicki. <laughs> I've known Vicki for many years. Very dear friend of my wife and I, and I'm so happy to see you this morning. Is God through with my Jewish friends? No. No. You see, God made it very clear that after the rapture of the church takes place, we revert right back to Daniel chapter 9. We go into verse 27, and again, the Jewish calendar begins to unfold once again. It's a marvelous thing. All right, next slide, please. Second uh, uh, Kings chapter 2. We want to talk about who are these two witnesses? Are there any clues in Scripture about who these two individuals might be? Well, let's take a look. 2 Kings chapter 2, And it came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elisha said, or Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Now, you remember this, and I always get them mixed up. Elisha, Elijah, I mean, they sound so close together. It's... Uh, um, Interesting, but we're talking about these two key prophetic players back in uh, Old Testament times. Verse 3, Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Folks, I, I find this amazingly interesting because Elisha, Elijah, and, and the prophets knew that God was going to remove Elijah. Doesn't tell us, it really doesn't go through the scenario, but everybody knew it. It was no secret. Verse 4 Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me unto Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Verse 5 Now the sons of the prophets 
who oh, you can keep moving forward on the screens, please. We'll follow Second Kings. We're up to verse 5. Well, there we go, one more. Okay, I'm just going to keep reading through. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? So he answered, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Verse 6, Elijah said to him, Stay here, please. Verse 7, And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance, while the two of them, speaking of Elijah and Elisha, stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water, and it was divided this way and that, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Do you remember the Red Sea crossing? This is a little, I mean, the Jordan River, and maybe back during the first century, I'm guessing maybe it was as wide as the church building. Today, a lot of the Jordan River would fit down the center aisle of the church here, maybe a little bit bigger. But he touches the water, and what happens? Just like the Red Sea, splits in two. And it says they walk over on dry land. Verse 8, or verse 9, And it was so when they crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what may I do for you before I am taken away from you. Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit fall upon me. Wow. Now that's not the punchline here, but it's a great passage. What is Elisha saying? He's like, Elijah, I've seen you do miracles. I've seen you work for God. I've seen the marvelous miracles that God has done through you. He's like, Elijah, I want to be, I want to be like you. I, I, I want God to, I, I, God to empower me like never before. I want to be able to do the things like you've done. I want to be a servant of God, empowered by him. Boy, that's a good prayer. Verse 10. So he said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Verse 11. Then it happened. As they continue on and talk, they sudden, then suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to where? Went to heaven. Did he die? No. He gets on this, if you will, angelic chariot. Next uh, slide. And uh, God literally, bam, he's up in heaven. Did Elijah die? The answer is no. Well, let's go to someone else. Genesis chapter 5. Next slide. There we go. Verse 21. Enoch. So we're talking about Elijah. Now we're going to talk about Enoch. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. Remember Methuselah? He's the oldest person that ever lived on earth, lived up to 969 years old. After he got Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and his son had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Did Enoch die? No. I got Elijah. I got Enoch. Went straight to heaven. Interesting. Let's go to one more, Matthew chapter 17 and verse 1. <clears throat> now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he, speaking of Christ, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Next slide. So what do we have? We have uh, 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 the transfiguration taking place. Who shows up at the transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. Now, Elijah hadn't died, but there he is. Moses, did he die? 
He did. He went up on the Mount Nebo. Uh, he had uh, basically disobeyed God when they were in the wilderness wanderings. He goes on the top of Mount Nebo and dies up there, and God took his body to heaven. Well, let's go to uh, the next verse, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, and what does it say? It says, and it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So here's the speculation. Now, folks, if I can't prove something unequivocally, we fully admit to it. Now, now scholars are, are a little bit divided on this one, good, good Christian scholars. Who are the two witnesses going to be? Well, the, I'll probably say the majority opinion is that Moses and Elijah will be the two that will be the two witnesses when they come back. Now, I... Of course, I never do anything like everybody else does, so I lean towards, but I can't prove it, it's going to be Enoch and Elijah. And you say, well, why is that? Because the point of the men wants to die, and after that, the judgment, both of those guys got off scot-free. You know, that's not fair. Um, I mean that facetiously, but uh, it's got, it, scholars are basically, it's either Moses and Elijah or Enoch and Elijah. I prefer the second one, but of course, I could be wrong. So we'll accept that. All right, so let's go on to the next section. Uh, the two witnesses, uh, we've gotten through that. And let's see. Oh, verse 4. We need to go there for a moment. So he's talking about these two witnesses, and what are they? They are called the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now, very quickly, what are we talking about? What comes out of olive trees? <laughs> olives, right? And olive oil, which is one of the main uh, substances, if you will, coming uh, for the Jewish folks. Why is olive oil important? What does olive oil represent in the scriptures? The Holy Spirit. So we have these two olive trees, if you will, that olive oils comes from, and they have two lampstands. What did the Jewish people use the olive oil to do? Well, outside of many of their baking things and other things that they did, the olive oil also served as the fuel for the lampstands. If you go uh, uh, back in uh, times when they had the menorah, the seven-branch uh, candlestick in Israel, they filled it with olive oil to keep it burning. Trees, if you will, where the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come through, and they will light up. So the Holy Spirit, the light of the world, is Jesus. These two witnesses will be out there empowered by the Holy Spirit, filled, uh, uh, sending out the light of the world to others. Uh, next slide. So let's look at the destructive power of the two witnesses. Next, Revelation chapter 11 and verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, Enoch, Elijah, Moses, whoever these two are, God is going to give them supernatural power, if you will, during this time. Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies, and if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike them uh, the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. You say, well, why is God calling these two witnesses? If you recall back when we went through Revelation chapter 7, God called how many other witnesses to testify for him? 
144,000 young male Jewish evangelists also talked about in Revelation 14. So Revelation 11, 144,000. Uh, 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 Revelation 11, the two witnesses. And then we'll talk about the uh, uh, witnesses again in Revelation 14. What are they called to do? The same exact thing you are. Poetic pause. What are the two witnesses supposed to do? Same thing God's called me and you to do. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. God said, listen. He says, you know what the two witnesses are going to be going through? God makes it very clear. It's not going to be a fun time. Everybody's going to be trying to do what to them? Kill them. God says, no. Now, folks, I'm going to make it very clear. God is not necessarily going to give you that same protection he's going to give to the two witnesses. We know of many folks today that are martyrs for Christ. We know folks that will die today in other countries, today, for their faith in Christ. So far, America, you might get a ticket if you preach in the wrong place. You might get put in jail for a couple days, but you're probably going to be fine at the end of the day. God says, listen, you two witnesses, you're going to be out there. You're going to be in the streets. You're going to be proclaiming the gospel, and it's going to get really, really bad. And God says to us, hey, Christian, hey, let's see, I haven't had any of you thrown in jail today. I haven't had any of you flogged. I haven't put handcuffs on any of you. I haven't had any of you beat to death today. I haven't any of you uh, uh, put in such a horrible way that you can't live. And God says, listen, we're ambassadors. What are you going to do for me today? Well, let's look down at uh, uh, the last section here. Now, uh, what happens to them? We find out in, uh, uh, that the two individuals that they will be murdered, when they finish their testimony, verse 7, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, which also are, where also our Lord was crucified. So what happens? Well, they're protected for a certain amount of time, and then God allows them to be martyred. They die. And a party's thrown. These two guys have been harassing the world with their ridiculous gospel. They've been doing nothing but talking about Jesus, talking nothing about judgment, and they were killing our own people. Damn Finally, we have victory. A satanic messenger comes and God allows them to be killed on the streets. Verse 9, then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. They're going to get out their cell phones and their whatever exists during that time and they're going to broadcast it around the world. The two witnesses, these horrible Christian guys, are dead. And the world's going to rejoice. I mean, it's actually going to be like Christmas time. It's like, man, let's give presents to each other. Let's party. These horrible guys that did nothing but talk about God are finally away. Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. They shut down the rain. They all of a sudden would cause the poor. They made the water into, I mean, horrible plagues like took place back when uh, Moses was delivering the children of Egypt, or from Egypt. 
Well, then what happens? Verse 11, the resurrection of the two witnesses. Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Listen, they knew these two guys were tormentors of them. And all of a sudden, bam, no. Seriously? All over the Internet. Takes about a half a second, right? Everybody knew it. They're back on their feet. People are scared to death because they're afraid of the, uh, the judgment that they're going to bring upon them. But, in a sense, the world gets lucky. Verse 12, And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Yes, these two individuals, whoever they might be, whether it's Enoch and Elijah, Elijah and, and uh, um, um, Moses, they're going to die. They're going to lay in the street for three and a half days. And God's going to say, Yep, just like Jesus, rise up. Just like Lazarus, rise up. Just like hundreds of others that uh, were resurrected when uh, Christ was crucified, rise up. And uh, God's going to, if you will, this is like a, a rapture. These two guys uh, are literally raptured, if you will, up to heaven. They're caught up. They're taken up just like uh, one generation of Christians will be. Well, folks, we'll close with that. It's an amazing account of what will take place in the prophetic future. It's going to happen. God's word will be fulfilled. So here's the final issue. Christian, God's called you to be a what? His ambassador. You see, when we leave the building this morning, after we have a good time with each other, after we have a good time of fellowship, after we go to our Sunday school time, all of a sudden, bam, we're back out in the battlefield. And it's a battlefield. And God says, Hi, what are you going to do for me this week? Like, ah, am I really going to be an ambassador or I'm going to? Folks, I don't want to get, you can't get fired as an ambassador, but we can do a rotten job or we can do a great job. Now, when the president, whatever administration it is, when they pick an ambassador, they're vetting the individuals. They want the best they uh, believe uh, an individual that's going to really invest in being a good ambassador to another country. Are there some that do a lousy job? Oh, you betcha. There's some ambassadors that get fired because they're a poor representation. Well, God's not going to fire us. That's the good news. Do you remember the judgment seat of Christ, what happens up there? After the rapture of the church, we go to every single one of us will go to the beam seat of Christ. And every single one of us will be given rewards for what we've done for God. And God says, listen, there's going to be two piles of things that we do during our life. Wood, hand, stubble, and gold, silver, and precious stones. And God says, you know, your works are going to be looked at as this pile and this pile. And God's going to take a flamethrower and poof, the wood, hay, stubble, it's gone. You know what rewards you get for that? Nothing. And God says, I got, here's the good things that we've done to serve God, the precious stones, the gold, the silver, when you witness to folks, when you spend time in the word of God, when you're kind and helpful to others as a Christian and, and, and showing the gospel message to others and praying and serving him. And God says, those are the, the precious things. You see, the good news is if you've trusted Christ, you'll go to heaven. And that's wonderful. And we want everyone to go to heaven. The further good news is God has rewards for all the positive things that we do for him, the gold, silver, precious stones. 
But over here, he says, Brother Rich, I got a pile of wood, hay, and stubble, stuff that you messed up on while you were a Christian, uh, things that you di didn't do, horrible things that you did and you shouldn't have done, and that goes away. The good news is God says you're saved, yet souls by fire, but that's the good news. Folks, what are you collecting up in heaven for God? This earth is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's golden shore, and I just don't feel at home in this world anymore. Folks, let's, uh, let's uh, build up treasure for God. Let's tell folks about Christ. Let's keep in our Bibles. Let's be faithful serving Him. If you're here this morning or watching on the Internet, next slide, please. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you have a personal relationship with Him? What will you do with Jesus today? You see, all the things we looked at this morning are prophetic. They're future. They're not going to happen while I'm here. They could happen in a week, in a month, in a year, a couple of years. We don't know. God doesn't tell us when he's coming back to take the church home to be with him. But here's one thing I know. If you're watching, you're like, I don't want to go through those horrible things. And that's a good motivation, but here's the best motivation. You know that God loves you this morning? you know that God loves you this morning? Do you know that Jesus Christ loves you this morning? Do you understand that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came from, down from heaven, went on a cross, died for your sins? The Bible makes it clear we're all sinners. We've all deserved to go to hell. I deserve to go to hell. You say, how can a preacher deserve to go to hell? Because I was born a sinner. And every single one of us is. And God says, because you sin, because uh, 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 if you got what you deserve, you spend eternity in an awful place called the lake of fire, Revelation 21.8. But God says, but I so loved you that I came down from heaven for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believes in him in his death, burial, and resurrection should not perish or go to hell but have everlasting life. Have you ever accepted God's free gift? We said those verses this morning. We're going to say them one more time. For by grace, God's free unmerited gift are you saved. It's through faith. It's not of yourselves. You can't earn heaven. It's the gift of God. He holds it out there this morning. He said, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Yes. Do you believe that you're a sinner? Yes. Do you understand that you deserve eternity in hell? Yes. And he says, well, here's the free gift. The free gift is Jesus Christ went to the cross. He paid 100% of your sin debt, and he asked you to do one thing and one thing only, place your faith and trust in what he did. Every eye closed, every head bowed. Please, Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the precious word of God that tells us about the past, the present, and the prophetic. So, Father, I pray this morning that you'd help each of us to be reminded about the things that will happen after the rapture of the church. Father, help us as your ambassadors to be charged up, to be telling everybody we can the precious news of Jesus Christ. Help us to live for you. Help our good works to be exactly what you've called us as your people to do. Finally, if you're here this morning or watching and have you placed your faith and trust in Christ? Have you received the free gift of eternal life by placing your faith and trust in Jesus? I encourage you to do that this very moment. Right now, right where you are, are you ready to take the free gift of salvation? You say, Brother Rich, I am. I want to go to heaven when I die. I want that free gift of eternal life. All right, last time. Would you tell the Lord what you're thinking in your heart right now? Would you admit that you're a sinner to him? Would you tell him, yes, you understand the penalty of sin as he eternal life in an awful place called hell, the lake of fire. And now would you be reminded and thank God that Jesus Christ, his son, came down from heaven, died on the cross for your sins, was buried, and three days later rose again. Would you thank him for what he did? 
And now if you're ready to put your faith and trust in him, you've already done it. Right there where you are. Just accept it. Receive it. And now let's tell him about it. We're going to say a short prayer. The prayer is not what will save you. It's your faith alone that saves you. But let's tell Jesus if you've just done that in your heart. Maybe you can say something to him like this. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I don't deserve to go to heaven. But I get it that Jesus Christ came down from heaven, died on the cross for my sins, was buried, and three days later rose again. And he did all that to pay my sin debt. And I'm receiving that free gift of eternal life this very moment. Thank you, dear Lord, for saving me and promising to take me to heaven when I die. Father, seal decisions. We commit all of them to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.